you know, from going that first couple of weeks of lockdown thinking I've had enough for Sheffield and actually seriously looking into being a gardener and doing gardening and stuff like that and um, just and stopping it completely. Welcome to another episode of the Burnt Chef Journal, hosted by myself, Chris Hall, the founder of the Burnt Chef Project. Today's guest is no other than Nathan Outlaw, who joins us to talk about his experiences from the early days of contract catering all the way through to owning uh, two Michelin stars at restaurant Nathan Outlaw and why he's made the decision to change it to Outlaw's new road. It's a really insightful chat with Nathan this week where he talks about his perceptions of Michelin and, and accolades and how he's not really sort of that focused on winning them or not, as well as also some of his major life experiences as well that's led him to where he is now, including his time at Rick Stein's. It's a fantastic chat. It was great to have Nathan on board, and I really hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of the Burn Chef Journal. Lamb Western are your partner in potatoes. We're a leading global frozen potato manufacturing business with a wealth of experience in offering a portfolio of high-end and quality products on a consistent basis. We supply the pub, casual dining, QSR sectors. We believe in well-being free potatoes and we are very proud to support the Burnt Chef Project. Here to offer our support and help for those that need it and any solutions that you need for you and your business. Hello. Nathan. How you going, all right? Not too bad, my friend. How are you? Yeah, good. There you go. I think I, can you see me now? I don't know why. I'm not nice. sure it's coming up. <laughs> Technology and all that. Oh, man. You'd think we'd um, in the storeroom, I see. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's that's a shelf in my kitchen at home. But yeah, (laughs) it looks like a a storeroom. You're in the storeroom too, and you're like, I'm in the office and storeroom. No, this is my this is my house too. This is how I. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, this is sort of the hub where. uh, yeah, something that started off as a good idea suddenly took shape and form and ended up just becoming a messy room, really. Um, yeah. Sort of, uh, You're doing amazing things. I, I've been reading all the stuff and listening to all the podcasts and that. It's really good. So, yeah, I mean, I think the industry really needed something like it, to be honest with you. I don't think, I mean, you've got hospitality action and things, all that sort of stuff, but they don't really deal so much with the mental health, do they? So that side of it, not as much, so. No, I appreciate that. I mean, it's good to hear, especially coming from people like yourself and, and seeing other people get on board as well. It's it's a fine line to tra- tread, though, isn't it, really, at the end of the day? Because you don't want to make it too much a case of, like, we're creating an industry of snowflakes and people who just aren't able to stand the heat of a kitchen for for any more than five minutes at a time. But also, yeah. it's you know, it's been so overlooked for so many years that it's starting to... I believe it's going to cause a long-term impact to the industry. And I want that to, to turn around and for more people to come back into it. And mm. also for people to stop taking their own lives as well. Cause it's just, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that's all uh, that sort of stuff to get to that stage like, over something. Cause uh, well, we, a lot of people just consider it as just a job. Yeah. You know I mean, like to get to that stage to be like, I just can't comprehend. I mean, it's mental, that sort of stuff, but yeah, it's um, but the, I mean, obviously, it's talking about it is the way forward. So you've got to sort of, um, yeah, that's why it's so good. You know, the industry really needs to know it is a tough industry. And it it always has been. I think always will be to some extent. I don't think you can never get what, like you say, can't get can't be snowflakes because otherwise, uh, yeah, nothing's going to get done. <laughs> so there is that element of it. 
But um, yeah, it's just the way you go about it. So I've never felt the need to be an arsehole. So like in terms of being in the kitchen, so I don't ask, you know, yeah, I've obviously worked with people that are arseholes in my junior years, but in terms of actually um, being a I just don't, it's not productive and it never, it's never worked. So I've never done it, you know, but yeah, I, I know plenty of stories and I've been in plenty of positions to see what, what can be like. Yeah. I'm sure you have. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I, I'd like to be able to say that I'm a, I'm a chef. I do believe that there's pride. I, you know, I'd love to be able to say that I know what I'm doing within the kitchen environment, but I think one of the reasons why I've been able to do what I do is because I haven't been, I, whilst I've worked front of house, so I spent two years working at a very busy bar, but I've been from a different side of hospitality. So I've actually been from the supply side. Right, um, okay. I spent sort of the well, best part of almost 12 years supplying fine dining ingredients to restaurants all across the Southwest. Um, okay. Unfortunately, not as far as Cornwall and, and Devon, but you know, it's given me a, an insight. I mean, I've worked with thousands must be thousands of chefs yeah. quite quite closely over an extended period of time. And it's given me an insight into what they go through and, and how they operate and what a kitchen environment's like. But I don't have that restriction upon myself in terms of ego or in terms of pride or in terms of a reputation to uphold. Like if this if this completely and utterly failed in the early days, you know, for me, I you know, I wouldn't have had to walk back into a kitchen and go, there we go. I tried to do something and I've ended up yeah. fucking it up, you know? Um, so I, I guess I'm quite lucky, but also in the same respect, I've, whilst I've seen firsthand the the effects that a kitchen and, and a hospitality environment have, I've, I've obviously experienced mental health issues myself, but not brought on by, specifically by working in the kitchen. Mm. So a bit of a wolf, not, not a wolf in sheep's clothing, but like a Trojan horse in some ways. I feel like a bit of yeah. a charlatan, but... <laughs> You know, uh, what I'm doing is is hopefully going to benefit the industry and it's going to benefit people's lives. And um, Yeah, no, good on you for getting up and doing something because like, it should have been done way before now, really, bringing that attention to it. Thank you. Yeah. So, Nathan, I'm intrigued because whilst I've eaten at your place, um, Padstow is like a second home to me. I absolutely bloody love love the area and I love everything yeah. around that area. It's um, in fact, we're coming back there in August, so I'll um, I'll come and dine with you then, if things get back to normal. <laughs> I'm touching words, but um, just talk to me a little bit about sort of your journey, because obviously I know that you've worked with with some quite influential people within the industry, and you've touched upon the fact that you've worked also in some places that perhaps haven't done things in necessarily the right way. And I'm interested to learn a little bit more about your backstory, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, where should you want to start from the beginning or? Yeah, talk, how did you, I mean, I know you've got family ties in the industry. How did you, uh, how did you decide that this career was going to be the career for you, despite, uh, you know, seeing the uh, effects of it? I think, yeah, the earlier sort of time, you know, I'm talking when I was, you know, probably five, six, that sort of age. I mean, I'd used to, I used to um, obviously see my father coming home, being a chef um, and the, the pride and the sort of, yeah, it's definitely a pride that he had in his work, and it wasn't—he wasn't doing what I'm doing or doing like you know, he wasn't a, a cooking at a high end in terms of like what the public perceived to be high end. He was cooking in like um, what he calls them glorified canteens, but you know, contract catering. You know, so he was doing—he was doing like that. He called, yeah, that sort of thing, and but it was on a high scale. It was a massive scale. You know, you talk, he, he was doing 
2000 lunches, you know, private directors dining, you know, evening events, weekend events for all the employees of this big paper company because it was like a, they had a big club and everything. And I, I was lucky enough to be dragged along with him, to, yeah, to, to especially at the weekends. I mean, I used to do Saturday mornings, like just because I loved getting up and doing it and doing the breakfast shift and stuff with him. And yeah, I shouldn't have been there. It's like totally legal, like, so, <laughs> totally, against, totally against the rules. But it was, um, I think because I didn't get in the way and because I did just get on with, I weren't pissing around, I'd, I'd get on with what, yeah, what I was asked to do, even at a young age. I just love being part of that. And I think that, that the camaraderie and I suppose the early signs of things that shouldn't have happened, that when you're young, you think, well, that's quite funny. Do you know what I mean? Like someone's being told, you know, someone's being whipped with a cloth or something like that. You're an eight-year-old kid. You're like, well, that's quite funny, right? But, yeah, you know, yeah. realising later in life, that's not. But you should, even if I think, because ever since I said yeah, to come and talk to you, I was like, I've been thinking about all the things that would have just went by the by. And you just sort of they accepted. So and the name, like the things like yeah, people will add like um, uh, uh, nicknames and stuff like that. Which if you're thinking back at them, weren't very nice. Yeah, you know I mean, even an eight-year-old kid, I can remember that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, no, so, so but I think from the excitement point of view and the adrenaline and the sort of like and and then people actually turning around as customers and saying thank you very much. That was a lovely breakfast or. Thanks very much. That sort of thing. I thought this is really, really cool. And I, and also I'm quite artistic in terms of I love drawing and I love animation and things like that. And if I hadn't been a chef, that's probably where the route I would have gone down. But I could mix that in with cooking. And I saw that there was an artistic side to it. So you're very early on my jobs were, and it's only simple things and it's probably, that it would look terribly naff now, but it was like, you know, just laying up uh, salads for a big function of 500. Yeah, but making them look really, looking and making sure they're all consistent and looking lovely. And even at that age, I would try and put the cucumber in the right place and make sure the radish sat in the right place and things like that. Yeah, even yeah, like yeah. Van Dyke in tomatoes and things like that. Like It's so naff, but it, it was just that you, I always try to get it right. And I think, yeah, and I think so. That always spoke to me as a young, as a kid, that there was a profession where a I didn't have to sit down, b I didn't have to do any writing. This is what I thought when I was younger, and, <laughs> and, but but I could just do practical things like like have fun, cook, you know, and people enjoyed it. You know, and that was really I heard so it was the basis of reason, reason why I come a chef. I had no clue. I mean, you're talking this is eighties, right? Early eighties. I would have been in the kitchen with my dad. So there was no celebrity chefs, there was no like TV chefs, there was not, you know, not that I knew of and you didn't buy cookery books. So it wasn't it wasn't um, that part of the industry that made me want to be a chef. I, I didn't have a clue that you had, there was awards and accolades and all that sort of stuff for it. I didn't have no clue. And it wasn't actually until I became a chef and started in London that I actually realised that there was, you, you could get prizes for for being a chef I didn't have a clue yeah. so it was a it was a pure coming into being a chef was purely it's in me and that's what you know and my grandparents have got they all had links to um working in local hotels in in the Maidstone area um where I where I come from where I come from and then um, my mum was, you know, she's a teacher now, but she, when she was, before, you know, the end days, you weren't, if you were a female, you weren't meant to be a, you know, teacher. You had to just look after the kids. So she looked after me and my brother, but then later on become a teacher. But while she was looking after us, she worked in, in hotels and she did catering as well. 
um and youth and youth work actually so i think that's where i get from both of my parents i mean one's a chef and one's a teacher and and, and with the youth work and all that sort of stuff so i've got i think i've got the best of both worlds from them really and i sort of like i, I love to teach you know i do give a shit about people and i love cooking <laughs> so that's pretty much me you know so then i mean when I actually, because I'd been cooking for so long, I started like cooking, I suppose, and getting paid for it when I was like 14 years old in a local pub. Um, and that was just really for you know, pocket money. And, you know, but again, it was a different environment. Again, it was fun. It was fast. And you, you know, it wasn't one of them places where you prep everything from scratch. We were opening tins and opening packets, you know, and that was, that was the way it was. So I wasn't, it wasn't really until I say done college and I got to college, when I was 16 and went to Fannett College, which is now called East Kent College in, in Broadstairs. And um, it wasn't until I really got in there. I mean, I had a good understanding of the kitchen because of my dad, but I didn't realise that there was this real sort of French foundation to the cooking that was being done at that point. And, mm. and sort of that's when I sort of started realising there's a lot more to it than, than what I'd seen so far. So so I was in, I was sort of engulfed in, in the college, but I wasn't that interested in college, you know, in, in terms of I wasn't a star pupil. I, I did, I was truant and I did sort of like go to the pub with my mates and didn't get lessons. And I was, and, but I blasted through it because I was lucky enough to have had all the experience like before that, yeah. you know, which is totally the wrong, you know, totally the wrong way to look at it. But, <laughs> and, and I'd love to have taken more in, but I mean, I still, I got through it very easily because I was very fortunate to have been into, in kitchens for such a long time. So it was just a matter of learning the French stuff. It was a matter of learning all the Escoffier stuff and, you know, and that was it really. But the actual cooking, going into a classroom and they'd say, make a parsley sauce, I'd probably done it, you know, 10 times already before with my Practical. dad. So, yeah, so it was sort of like, and so you were straight away, you know, I suppose it's like anything, if you don't have to, you already know it you sort of you sort of disregard it because it's almost you're young and you're stupid and you don't really you're not really thinking like an adult and you thought oh, I know all this and it's that sort of attitude you know what I mean and it's actually looking back at it I would probably have been a right a bit of an idiot really so for, for the for the lecturers it's a bit so I'm glad, you said, just... I'm glad you said that oh college is everywhere going oh shit all the students are banned from this podcast episode yeah. <laughs> they're all being told to go down the pub get pissed and uh you know do weekend um, work but no yeah. I, I mean ever since since being more more recently I was involved in colleges and I got yeah Cornwall College and we had an academy for six years there which unfortunately is not because our funding is not happening now but um yeah I mean the importance of college is, is is very important. I was just a really, I was just a, a fortunate or unfortunate, whichever way you put it, to to already know. But there's a lot. The way I see it, when I've been involved in colleges, you you have pe- young young people or people changing their career and that are um, at different points in their life. And I think that college gives you that foundation and that grounded to really to actually go into a proper kitchen or a proper hotel, um, because. If you don't have it, you're going to struggle, and then it's mm. going to be a nightmare for you. So, yeah, I do. I I I believe in college, and I think colleges will. It's just a funding thing. They're they're strapped for cash, and you know, it's like anything. Yeah, it they, it's until the government see it as a serious occupation and one and a serious industry, it will never be funded properly. Which is army. like yeah. you know, with three point two million people within this industry. I mean, hopefully that remains the case after COVID, but. There's so many people, the third largest industry in the UK, bigger than other like aeronautical industries and other industries like that. And the government still mm. look at it as a, you know, a stopgap career. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, 
loopy about I'm, I'll get started yeah. on a tangent you carry on otherwise yeah. we're yeah. ranting yeah I, I, I agree with you completely I think it's bad but now I did um, so I did college and then um, all the time we were at college all the lecturers were telling us you've got to go to London you've got to work in a London hotel five star place so I did what everyone else did um, at that time we all applied for you know the Ritz the Dorchester um places you know the Savoy and you go up and do like a day's work or a morning's work with them and stuff that was a good insight actually at first because I went to Savoy um Dorchester didn't even Dorchester just didn't even give me a reply at the time bearing this is 1996 I think probably mm. about 1995 um and because at that time there was queues of queues of young chefs outside wanting a job it wasn't like it is now it was like the, the, you know, I, I know that I went for a second comedy job. I eventually worked at the Intercontinental and Hyde Park Corner, um, which was, you know, it's a five star hotel. Um, I know that six six commie chefs are, for, are second commie, so below commie went for that job. You know, so n- now you could just walk into them them jobs, and it wouldn't be and it wouldn't be students from colleges. It would be like sort of it wouldn't be ethnic. Yeah, you know, it would be people from different countries. It wouldn't be you know, white English or people like necessarily coming from colleges like we all were. It's like everyone was going for these jobs, yeah, you know, yeah. and there was only so many of these jobs available. And that's why people like the Ritz didn't reply to me. Dodgers didn't reply to me. Savoy, I went and did an interview with Anton Edelman, who's a chef there at the time. Um, but I just got forgotten about in the corner of the kitchen, pe- peeling aubergines. I remember, I remember peeling aubergines. I was like doing uh, boxes and boxings for a banquet that they must have had um and and then the intercontinental was the only place that i've got in there and uh, as a young you know i was 17 at the time so they, they actually took time care and chef there was a guy called peter kronberg who's who unfortunately he's not with us anymore um and he he was just you know i, I thought this is the place because there was the actual kitchen was so diverse mm-hmm. there was it wasn't i'd seen that savoy was very much french and english chefs yeah, that was always in the kitchen and a few German chefs. I went into the Intercontinental and it was so diverse, Japanese, Thai, Filipino, um, you know, obviously European, but the European chefs were more in the fine dining and the, the rest of the world was sort of like in the, in the, um, but it's called the lobby, lobby lounge. And there was, uh, what do I, it was like a cafe and stuff. And I, I actually, they, they, there was two options. You can go in the French fine diner, which had just lost, it lost its Michelin star. I didn't know what Michelin, I know now, but I didn't know that that <laughs> happened. Um, and so I was like, yeah, there's a lot of grumpy French chefs in that kitchen. I wonder why they're grumpy. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. So I was like, I, I was like, I'm going to go and work. I, I said, they offered you like two roles. I said, I said, oh, I'd love to work with all the guys from, you know, because I could see there's this amazing Japanese chef that was doing some really cool things. And there was this, this Thai guy was making these beautiful curries. And I'd never seen any of that food. Like that was like, never, ever seen that sort of food in my life. So I went and worked in that and then didn't bother with the fine dining. So through, it wasn't, I was there for probably about 18 months in total. And then my father, he was working for Sodexo, which was Gardener Merchant. And they just done a deal with Gary Rhodes. Um, to open his first restaurant so I because I had that link of Sodexo Gardner Merchant Gary Rose and I knew of him I sort of went for a job as a comedy chef at his new restaurant that was opening in Holborn called City Roads um, and that I'd never when I went I got the job off of the back of my CV like coming from the same college as Gary Rhodes being a boy from Kent 
you know, um, working at the, the working at the Intercontinental, which they knew good chefs would come from. And I didn't even do an interview, so I went straight in there. And the first day, I was in the kitchen, right? And it was brand new, opened on, you know, it was it was the opening day, um, and it was just a massive shock. Like it was, it was, I'd never because I'd never experienced a Michelin-starred restaurant. I never experienced a restaurant that um, was so focused and so military and everything was done. It was just like a shock, too much shocks for the system. So I, yeah. I did it. I did my, you know, I worked my artist, but I walked out after three months. I was like, I, you know, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I was like, it, it was too, it was literally too much for me. So, and I think looking back at it now, you know, Gary was up, he rung me a few times and I saw him before he passed away actually in Dubai. And you know, he's like, You turned out all right in the end, didn't you? Like, so I said, Yeah, I did. But <laughs> the point was that the kitchen was so it was my first experience of going into a kitchen where they had their own little clique of 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 chefs. And if you didn't fit in with that, you were basically just abused, right? And shouted at and treated like shit, given all the bad jobs um and and it wasn't gary don't get me wrong he was not he yeah he, yeah i'm sure he was they would have had the senior guys were aware of it it's just the way that, that that was run that was just mm-hmm. the way that that kitchen was run and i know now because i've you know obviously run kitchens it was down to the pressure of how much they were the output they were putting from the kitchen you know and the standard they were putting it out so therefore there was no time for teaching people there was no time for um people slacking behind or if you didn't fit in with the gang you were basically a pain so it was very difficult for me young 18 year old coming from so far my experience of being in kitchen has just been great and fun and then being into a place where you you know someone is going to scream in your face because you've not put the parsley in the right place in the fridge you know and and that that so that sort of thing was too much for me at that age you know and mentally like i suppose looking back at it it was just like living on my own in London for the first time, away from my parents, um, not having any money, because you had no, you know, no money at that stage of your career being a comic chef. And then going into work to just be abused and be shouted at and just to be like, have no fun at all, there's zero, it was no fun in there, right? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So, um, but saying that, there was lessons to be learned from it. Yeah, there was things I pulled away from that, um, working in that restaurant that I still keep with me now, that I still use now, you know, so um so yeah i mean, wouldn't say you know looking back a bit once i'd walked away from it and probably about a year later i think i could have handled it longer just feeling sorry for myself and being young i suppose you know but it was just it was a bit much so i went back to the intercontinental hotel and peter Kronberg sort of he almost told me that that would happen you know he's got a wise chef and he sort of <clears throat> He sort of didn't say you're not ready for it, but he sort of said, oh, I'll see you soon sort of thing. <laughs> As if to say, yeah. I know what's going to happen. No, so, I, Yeah, so I went back um, with my tail between the legs, I suppose, in a little way, and then just went back in, in the same place and working hard, doing night shifts and everything at 18 years old. And, you know, I, didn't, I just loved it. Um, but then a, a friend of mine told me about a really exciting chef called Eric Chaveau, um, who I knew nothing about, um, was what was opening a restaurant in Fulham Road. Um, and it was going to be like, you know, he was telling me that he, this is guys are the best chef, you know, in the country. He's going to, you know, he's this restaurant's going to be the greatest and stuff like that. And um, so he started setting me up stages because of the Intercontinental, we were doing eight hour days. He wasn't doing 16 hour days. 
who had like shifts, I had always had evenings or mornings off. So what I started doing was going and working and doing like sort of work experience with with Eric Chaveau and in between working at the Intercontinental as well. I did that for about three months until a job came up. Um, and I and all the time I did that, I it was just a bit more of a, it wasn't as a hard smash into the kitchen like it was a Gary Rose it was like an introduction to it so you yeah it was hard you know and Eric is a he's an amazing chef and he's a tough chef as well you know you you don't come from a background like he that he's from and not be tough and the reason why I did well in that kitchen um was because I kept my mouth shut and I and I was good like I was you know I did what I was told and it was only really the ones that got in trouble were the ones that were the ones that give me a bit of lip back or did turn up late I just I just learned my lesson from working for Gary and then you know say lick my lick my wounds back at the Intercontinental and then slowly introduce myself back into that environment because I knew I wanted to cook food of that level I wanted to cook the best food you know so and Eric at the time I mean when he opened Chavot in, in Fulham Road I mean that food he was cooking there I mean it never got to a chance to get to two or three Michelin star because it, it went out of business within less than a year right so yeah and that's when I lost obviously I worked there for that time and then he announced that we yeah we're closing guys because we're going out of business and I um so then that's when I decided that London was enough I had, I had enough of, of London and I sort of as a child I'd worked it I'd always gone to Cornwall on holiday so I sort of decided that um I'm going to go and move out of London. So I went, uh, a friend of mine, so the same friend that introduced me to Eric Chavot was a group of friends that they'd all worked together at the Savoy Grill and there's about four of them. And they're all in like the sous chef sort of level um, and they all talked and and they all, and basically a friend of a friend knew someone who was in Rick Stein's seafood restaurant um, as a sous chef. So he got, he got me an interview. So I jumped on the train um, and then just went down to Paddington and did a couple of days trial um, um, at the seafood restaurant, and and just straight away loved it. I was like this this kitchen is like for me because I've been working on fish stations, on fish sections in all the kitchens that I've been in, and now it's obviously my, that's what I love. And I was like, well, if I'm going to learn how to do it, at the time this was like say ninety yeah ninety ninety eight, I think it was. It was like Rick just he was just on out you know, TV with his second series, and it was just like he was the man. He was the he was the fish guy, right? So I was like, if I'm going to learn how the best fish, I've got to go and work for Rick Stein. So I went down there, um, did my day trial, and they gave me a job. Came back to um, London, did my month's notice with Eric, and I think I'm the only person that ever did a month's notice. I think like people <laughs> just just went. Um, I did that, and then um, and I think yeah, well, I've seen Eric in you know more recent times and you know he sort of you know he remembers me as this big lanky like sort of 18 19 year old and not really much else really but yeah he he always we have a laugh so um but yeah no that was a tough kitchen but going into the seafood restaurant it was just sort of like a revelation for me because it was like again it was busy like the most covers I've ever done we're doing 140 150 of an evening service 100 for lunch I think they do more than that now. I think they do 200 and something now but um and but it was just quite a close team um and then Rick was 
it's a different he was a different um sort of teacher in that he was um he was traveling he was traveling all over the world doing his shows and then bringing back all his ideas the inspiration came from seeing or you know when he had new ideas he would fax fax a, a, a recipe through because the faxes then it weren't no email um <laughs> in fact yeah and we'd like head, the head chef paul ripley who's a very good friend of mine he was um he would like come down from the office with a new recipe that Rick, Rick was in Australia and he just sort of, you know, come up with a new dish, basically he'd nick the dish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Borrowed, been influenced Borrowed. by. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a bit, yeah, Rick is, he, he's a self-confessed magpie anyway. You know, he always says that he, he picks up things from all over the world. But, you know, I, we, you just saw so much, such a diverse um, repertoire of different things. And different foods, sorry, and um, and and using different ingredients as well. I mean, I was straight away using you know ingredients from Asia that I'd never used before, um, using cooking techniques for the fish that I'd never done before, using fish I'd never used before. You know, seeing that is a complete gut going back to school. Um, at that time when I worked there, everything was done on site. I mean, I think now they got to a size where they they have a prep area, but you know we were doing everything. So it was yeah, you know, when an order come on for for freedom there, you cooked it. Yeah, it wasn't already done. Yeah, you yeah, you, yeah. you got it done, and you know when fish, you know, an order came on for a bass, you you take it out of the fish and fillet it, and then you pass it over to the guy who's cooking it. You know, so it was the process was was quite. It was actually quite unorganized, I suppose, looking at it, but organized at the same time. How, it was. Um, I mean, how? Sorry, just very quickly, because you're talking about like. You know, recipes from all over the world is is incredibly inspiring, and as a, as a young chef as well, that must be awesome. But like, when these recipes are coming through with things like finger limes on them, yeah. how are you guys? How are you guys going? Right, okay, I've got the recipe from Australia, but how the hell do we get hold of these ingredients? Or were you were you adapting it to fit to fit yeah, what's I mean, available within a lot, the local area? Yeah, I think a lot of Rick's earlier recipes are adapted. So obviously the ingredients aren't available. So finger limes, I never saw a finger lime there. But the things that we saw that were there's a lot of dried chilies because obviously you could either get them himself and bring them back or you could get them over um, and things that, you know, just ingredients like vinegars and oils and things that just weren't in, you just didn't really, I'd never seen in a kitchen before and or tasted. So I tasted a lot of different things. But yeah, we, yeah, I mean, Rick adjusted a lot of his, the recipes that he saw around the world um, to make sure that we could cook them in padsto. So yeah, and, and I think being part of that, it wasn't the early process because the restaurant had already been open for 20, 20 odd years when I started there, right? It's now been, I think they're 40 in their 44th year or something like that. So it's, which is amazing. So it, but it was, um, it was like a new start when I started there because they, they had a new kitchen built. It was like a, a like a third or fourth stage of a, of a growth. You know, I think they're on to like 10 or 12 now. Yeah. So it's, it, they've grown and grown. And, and yeah, so it was just, it was just, I mean, also the kitchen, it was non-stop. I mean, there was never a time, like you say, about going for it, like your welfare side of it. It was just because I was young and hungry and just wanted to do it. that I never even thought about the negative side. I never thought about, you know, we always actually did get a break in the afternoon and things like that working at Rick. So you you'd go surfing or you, you do, you do something like that. Um, which was great. Um, but you're still doing long hours, you know, and, you know, and it was tough. Um, but um, but it, I think I don't have any from that kitchen. I don't have any negative like thing to say about it. Like it was just like positive. And there was if you but if you I suppose if you were a bit more a snowflake, like you said, like a bit more like you, there would be things that you'd be like, that's pretty tough. But because it was just 
everything that I love about food, but also an environment where you're learning so much if you had the ability to take from it. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was great. And it wasn't, it wasn't, until, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have left there until the head chef, um, Paul basically said that, you know, you're good. You, you need to, you need to look at other things as well, you know, because you need to go and see other things. And, you know, Rick, hate, Rick hated that. Rick didn't want me to go. And so it was the, and the, you know, I think that they might have had a bit of a falling out over that, but at the time, but it was, um, it was just that, you knew that I had a lot, there's a lot more to learn from other things. And I was supposed you could get just stuck into sort of, it, it would, it would have become very easy for me. It would have become yeah. really, yeah, it would just been, become a bit of a, I suppose you could see me getting into a bit of a rut maybe if I continued for a long time. So I did, I did that for two, two years, two solid years. And for, I suppose for the next 10 years after, I always thought about going back there. You know, I really thought about, even when I opened my first restaurant, I still thought about going to work back there with Rick because I thought it was, because the environment was, was, was good. And, and it was just, and it was, an, it was, I suppose, it was quite an easy life as well. Yeah, you know I mean that, that that's the two, so them two things are quite inviting when you're working. <laughs> and you when you you know the next move was going to work in the Cotswolds um, at Lords of the Manor with with, with John Campbell. He's, yeah. a, he's a great, very very intelligent and great chef. Um, but that was tough going from working in that environment with Rick, start, yeah, with Rick and going and surfing in your split and having your three days off a week and you know. It, and then going into working into a country house hotel that was aiming for big things, but was in the shit for staff. And yeah, we were working six, seven day weeks and stuff like that. It, yeah, you, yeah. you sort of thought, kept thinking back to Padstown, thinking, oh, actually, it might be quite good to go back there. <laughs> but no, I, 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 I realized myself that I needed to, you know, I, I was hungry for more. And that's when I started doing things like competitions as well. So I started doing like um, uh, this, um, the Academy Culinaire, so which is like the Awards of Excellence, which is um, basically an exam run by the, um, the Academy of uh, Culinary Arts, um, which I passed at, which is great. And I suppose that's where them sort of things is where you start getting noticed on a more of a national level because you sort of the caterer are there um journalists are there and they sort of you know if you if you you win or you just stick out and you get to meet people so i suppose that's that's where i started um you know people started you know knowing of what i do myself and then um then working for john campbell john at the time yeah working at laws of the manor um john took that place from being just a you know one of them places in the cotswolds where people come and stay and cut by the coach load to making it like one of the best country house hotels going um, at that at that point, and this would have been two thousand and two thousand, yeah, two thousand, two thousand one, I suppose that sort of time. And um, it was brilliant working with John. John was hard; he was a hard taskmaster, but he worked as hard as everyone else. So it wasn't like you, you someone shouting at you, then go and sit in their office. He was like, he cook, he do every section, you know, anything needs making, he was there as well. So, and it was nice to work with John at that stage because it was at a time where he was doing that sort of stuff. I mean, now he, he's he's still cooking now, like at, at the woods being, I think. Um, and I think that was for me, it just he, he gave me the ability, he honed all my skills. So, like, the cooking bit was, yeah, I could cook. I think I could cook quite well, but I just didn't, it was the refinement and it was also the organization of the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So I suppose, and because I was only, so I was only 20, 21, 
21 must have been 21 22 um and he was had faith in to give me a sous chef position at that age which is completely in, and looking back at the reason why he gave it to me is because there was no one else to want him to take it as well yeah there was no it was hard to find a sous chef right uh, yeah. probably should have been in there and i was sort of i had been i was junior sous chef at the seafood restaurant um and i suppose my my cv was quite good and i think looking at it i think john would have probably so, so you know, young and inexperienced, but experienced in other ways. So he took a punt on me and then made me his sous chef. So I was his sous chef for the two years until John left the Lords of the Manor. And then I, I came back to Cornwall and actually set up a restaurant with Paul Ripley, um, who was the head chef at the seafood restaurant called Ripley's, um, which he got, he, 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 I was there. And then John asked me to come back as head chef at the vineyard at Scott Cross. So I went back again to work with John um, and did really, it was when we took over the vineyard at Stockcross, it really was about being organised. We had to forget about the food for a minute and just get the whole place organised because it was a bit of a beast. Yeah. You know, you were doing big functions um, every day, like 100 plus of like lunch times and dinner times plus a 70, 80 cover restaurant that was trying to, you know, so, yeah, it was doing fine dining plus uh office meetings and then breakfast yeah it, it was a, a full-on operation like in terms of, and, it, and everything they were charging top dollar for everything so you know the expectation was super high and yeah. being in newbury in that area there's a lot of money in that area so people are expecting a lot so i mean the first thing we need to do is organize it so i think john john used me to i knew his repertoire and i knew his cooking so i was like in the kitchen doing the cooking and making sure the kitchen and the chefs were doing their stuff while john had to get everything else organized and then start moving things forward so and yeah, john went on to get two michelin stars there you know I, I only stayed there for a year um because my wife and i decided that we, could, we wanted to have a kid and um, we wanted rachel more she's from padstow so we wanted to move back to to cornwall yeah. so um against every piece of advice that everyone gave me i decided to open my own restaurant um, with my indoors um in 2003 um the black pig and i was like 24 years old and every and they were basically all um everyone told me not to and the guy the, the managing director of the vineyard offered me an extra 10 grand on my salary to say i said don't don't do that and i and john was john didn't speak to me for a long time after that as well he sort of not we didn't fall out but he just sort of, like, he was just annoyed that i was going and um so and i understand that i understand that but you know i've net one of that's one lesson i've learned from that i never i'm never like that with my chefs who leave me or with people that leave me i'm sort of like we always stay in touch um yeah so i went and opened the black pig at sort of 20 i was 24 and that was just purely down to knowing that i can i can do it you know, and I had my own self-belief that I was, I could, I could cook well and that I wanted to cook my own food and I didn't want to be part of a huge operation, um, which was, you know, still, you get paid well in, stupidly, but um, <laughs> and I wanted to do, I, you know, so I went from having, I'd say, 20 staff under me in vineyard kitchen down to just me on my own <laughs> in the kitchen with, um, and, 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 for the first three or four weeks, I was on my own, and then I, I was lucky enough to get a commie chef um, out from who was working for Rick Stein, um, who, who was wanting to leave and come and work with me. So it was just me and this young lad, uh, Michael, who's now actually lives in New York and has been there for the last 15 years. 
Um, but he, yeah, I mean, that was a complete, like, tran- you know, completely different world. But I got a chance to cook the food, my food, you know what I mean, for the first time. So yeah, my, Rachel, I think we opened on May the 20th and Jacob, my son was born on May the 6th, oh, our first kid. And so, so, and because I hadn't got, I wasn't technically employed. No one in the area would give us a, a house to rent because like we, I, I didn't, I had no salary, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we were living in my, my wife's brother's spare bedroom with a newborn baby with a restaurant opening in 10 days later. It's just that, yeah, I wasn't, I wouldn't say it's not for the faint hearted, that sort of thing. <laughs> no, I mean, Christ, that's, uh, I mean, it's hard enough opening up a business and trying to run a business and juggle that. I mean, bearing in mind, you, you're used to looking after staff, but then also running uh, financials of a business, working the business plans, doing the front of house, looking after lease agreements and all that other stuff. Oh, and we'll just add a newborn child onto it as well. That's, yeah, like, yeah. life is rosy. It's fine. I can handle it. Yeah, I mean, we, and I think I, I think you you can only do that when you're young like that because you don't got the experience to put doubt into your mind. Yeah, and I think as if I if you had said, you know, me and my wife were talking about, you know, if we'd had children now, and I'm like, I'm 43 and Rachel's 41, and like, and people, and a lot of our friends are still having children, and I, like I said, we, you just wouldn't do it if you knew what you knew. <laughs> so, but when you're young, you're younger like that. You just do things because you, naive, because you, you just feel like you, you, you believe you can do it. Like, and that yeah. was like having a family, opening a restaurant, coming away from a secure job um, was all because I believed that I could, uh, could actually do it, you know? And, and, and say so in terms of success, I mean, in the restaurant was very successful and even though it was in a seasonal area, yeah, the winter time was pretty tough and it, you know, it was, um, you know, like anything in Cornwall back then, it wasn't like it, how busy it is now. It was very dead for probably four or five months, really. Um, but in the summer times and the, and the busy times, we made, we did really, really well. And, um, you know, within eight, within eight months, we got a Michelin star. So that's when I think people started to recognise what we were doing. Because I was 25, opening a restaurant that was like in the arse end of nowhere at that point, really. Um, and then Michelin acknowledged that we were, were worthy of a star like out of the blue. So, um, and that was, was completely out of the blue. I mean, I'd not written to them, sent menus to them, done any of that stuff that people do now when they open a restaurant. You know, it was just, I don't know how, they, it was. It must have been through doing the competitions and doing that sort of stuff and the caterer. Like the, when we opened the Black Pig restaurant in Rock, the caterer had done a had done a little report on it, you know, like a little bit, that little small bit about it, you know. So, and I think that maybe they must just read that sort of stuff and then got wind of it. I, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes now you sort of people are looking out for the Michelin inspectors. They they know when they walk in and they're you know, yeah. brazen enough to be able to go and ask. I did hear a rumor that you served a profiter role to to a Michelin inspector. Is that true? Uh, I've been serving profit roles for all the time, <laughs> probably. <laughs> I, do, I do. I mean, yeah, yeah, sometimes amazing. I mean, the thing is, like, the Michelin um, sort of phenomenon, whatever you want to call it, the, the circus of my Michelin is um, no I don't think anyone actually knows, like, unless you are in that inner circle of inspectors. I mean, I've even met, met people from Michelin that don't work for the inspectors that work for the tyre company or high up in certain things, and they ain't got a clue. They don't, they don't know nothing about it. They don't know nothing about it. Even the press guy, I once spoke to the guy who's in charge of press permission, he said, I ain't got a clue. 
Like they just don't, it's that it's, I think it must be such an inner circle. Um, but I mean, my, my view on it was it, it's got to be down from, from the, from, I've had eight restaurants where I've won one star, like eight, eight restaurants in the time from, from the back pig until the outlaws new road this year, it's been eight, eight restaurants. where we've, that we've got one star. So the only thing I, from that experience of achieving that accolade, I can only put down to what I've been putting on the plate and what we, how we've been doing the restaurant. So I can sort of, I can say hundred percent, it's got to be down to the food for that. For, it's got to be down to what's on the plate because it's always been that consistency. My, I still cook dishes that are from the black pig in 2003 that yep. I'm still cooking them now. So in, in, in maybe they've changed slightly, but it's still the same, um, I suppose the same for, format, like same sort of what I think is right about food and what I can do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. I think I actually think there's a big, the sad side of the the whole accolades, not just Michelin, but all of it is the pressure it puts on chefs or the pressure it puts under chefs that get employed to get those awards. So like you get a job, watch part of your job as a head chef and you see it. And when you see the um, adverts, we want to achieve this, we want to achieve that, or, you know, part of your contract is you achieve these accolades by a certain, certain time. I mean, what the fuck is that all about? Mm. How can you really, you're asking someone to do something that's completely out of their control. You know, you can, you, know, you, you could be cooking 364, 364 days a year, you're cooking perfect food, and then that extra one day, you had a bad day, and that's yeah. the day they eat. That's the luck of the draw, isn't it? You know, and so it's structures that you don't even recognise or don't even know. It's not like Rosette where you go, right? I have to be doing X, yeah, Y, and Z. Yeah. You know, something like a Michelin. It's like I don't know. I don't yeah. Have my finger, put it in the air, and put some, you know, yeah. some nice textures on the plate. Like, I mean, I I've always been very fortunate. I mean, I've you know got the two stars with, um, with Restaurant Ethan Outdoor, and and we've done very well with like the Good Food Guide and with ten out of ten and number one and things like that. But even with that, I mean, not yeah, I've made I've been very honest about it. I sort of know, you know, I've met a few Good Food Guide inspectors and I've had chats to them because they're more like journalists, right? They're not necessarily as much inspectors. You sort of get, but you can no way cook off of the back of a conversation of what you've that you've had with them. There's no way you can go extract information from it from a chat over saying hello how's your meal or hello how are you how are you having yeah. a nice day yeah so it's not it's a certain amount of um they're very different i think in guys and said aa is different as well i mean aa i've never i've never re- i mean we got four rosettes because obviously it fits like you said the the criteria but i don't i've never really had big conversations with them in my career of, of working i've not you know i've, I've done the aa dinner at the, at the big hotel gala dinner thing that they do and i cooked for for that um but even then i didn't talk to an inspector not that i they didn't introduce themselves as an inspector anyway maybe i spoke to someone but yeah. um and and they got i got aa chef of the year one year which is voted by all the chefs or people that are in it so that was quite nice but i i think i've always just been lucky enough to just believe that I've been happy enough with what I've been cooking and what how our restaurant's running, and then the other stuff's just all all come on top. But I do feel bad about like I feel sorry, sorry. No, I'm empathetic to the people that that worry about all that all the time. I think it's 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 like it could it must be a nightmare. So. Is, 
It raises an interesting point, actually, because there's a lot of people who believe that you have to sacrifice mind, body and soul in order to be able to get these accolades and to be able to maintain Michelin. And obviously, mm-hmm. you know, from the sound of things and from your from your journey to from where you've worked in some places that are quite brutal in terms of how they they maintain that level of perfection to, you know, being able to achieve two Michelin stars and, and a Michelin star in eight different venues. You must have found this this balance of being able to, you know, not constantly sacrifice everything to be able to to uphold those standards i mean what's the secret like how do you do it i say i'm 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 lucky i mean i think probably the most stressful time i've ever had in my whole career in my life was back on that first lockdown i mean and that was nothing to do with accolades and it has to do with the pressure everybody else was under but i mean in terms of the accolades and i've always just i think i just got that thought of like it's not the end of the world you know, that's why I always think about it. I mean, at the end of the day, if they, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say it hasn't helped me because it massively has helped the way that, you know, the trajectory of, of my business and my, I suppose, my own sort of like um, place in the industry in terms of what, you know, the things I get, the opportunities I get and the things I get asked to do, which is lovely, but it, and and that all helps because that's part of that media world, you know, that cycle that goes around. But yeah, I like to think that I've always kept true to just cooking the food that I love cooking um, and that I think that customers want to eat. Yeah, uh, so I've never sat down and analysed any of the accolades and thought, all right, I need to do this, this and this to get this accolade. I've never, it's never been, it's never been. I mean, in fact, we in the kitchen, like the kitchen now, as we currently stand, we don't talk about it. We've never, we don't talk about it. We don't talk, it, even if I know there's an inspector in the kitchen or this, or um, the front of the house, give me a nod that someone, you know, there might be someone who's inspector. I don't tell, no one knows. I don't tell the chefs. No one knows about it. Because I just don't think that's, it's not fair to put them guys under that pressure, you know, because they might sort of see the pressure of it. Like they might, you know, don't know what, how their mind works. And um, I, I and that's not what I employ anybody for. I employ people to come and have fun, cook, learn, and enjoy themselves, and have a, and then and give our customers the best time that they can have. I don't employ them to worry about Michelin or, or the Good Food Guide or any of that. So yeah, you know, if so, what we've got actually is a really nice environment at our restaurant there where people are just thinking about each other. And not dissolute, not not and not actually sort of focus on anything else. They're not focused on what the other restaurant down the road thinks of us or what the customers think of us. Or it's sort of like it's sort of you, I try and give everyone confidence that what we're doing is a good job and and that's enough, you know. And I think that's why I've got longevity with hey, Pete, my head chef. We've been working together for twenty years. Yeah, he was we worked together at the, back at the vineyard at Stock Cross, you know. And yeah, you know, when I wasn't in charge, but he's been he's been working with me all that time and you know i've got steffi and damon who are my front of house guys and ian my general manager and they've they've all of them are into like 14 15 years mm-hmm. yeah because it's it's that it's just that in that environment so when we do get young younger guys coming in you know when they're on that cycle of doing 18 months to two years because that's normally what happens when you're a junior you're moving around we just bring them into that environment that you know you've got there's a two-tier thing and sometimes they come in and they want to they want to stay with us and they become part of that that tier and then you get the guys that are just getting this nice sort of almost like it's like a I suppose it's like an atmosphere that's like you're learning and you're teaching you and you'll get everything I don't want anybody coming out of my kitchen that 
you know, if I you employ someone from me, you want them to know that they can affiliate a fish, right? Or yeah. <laughs> you say, there's a bit of a problem if all cooks and fish. So that that we just concentrate on the giving, you know, younger guys all that sort of all the, the teaching and coaching and everything they need. And we look at the areas where they're weak and where they're strong and tend to try and give them lots of feedback and lots of um and, and lots of appraisals and stuff like that. And just to make sure that they come out of our kitchen if they do decide to leave us, uh, you know, with you know, with uh, with proud of what they've done, you know. So, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, the, the accolades. Well, you coming back to your original question with the accolade thing? I don't know. I've just never really seen the pressure of it I like that. Yeah, I just I've just been fortunate. I suppose I'm very fortunate to just achieve achieve the first star at the Black Pig. I suppose get got the whole thing rolling by just. I, I had no time to know who's in the restaurant. <laughs> I was on my own in the kitchen, like with a, with a washing lady. plates as well. Yeah, exactly. We were doing everything. <laughs> we had no KP. We never had a KP at the Black Pig at all. Not at all. Yeah, I think we had a couple of guys come in, surfers and stuff, and local. Every so often, they just had such a pain, to, like yeah, because they just weren't focusing what we were doing. With two guys, you just it's, it's easy to just do it yourself. So, um, yeah, it's yeah, we've just been very fortunate yeah, with that sort of stuff. So. Just to take a step back, because it sounds like the time that you had at um, Rick's was, I mean, you mentioned in there sort of just passed over, glossed over, but you mentioned that you had three days off and, you know, you're the constant creative buzz. I mean, what sort of things do you reckon were sort of the key factors within that business that that meant that people wanted to stay for so long and and continue their journey with them? Yeah, I mean, I think we've, well, we've Rick, you mean? yeah i mean we've i mean we've i mean one it gives you i mean it's a very strong business you know i mean obviously recently in the papers it had a few issues because of like everyone has with the covid and stuff but it's a, it gives you a solid foundation you know you work for rick stein looks good on your cv he's known all over the world he's known in australia if you want to travel it gives you lots of opportunities so i think from a young person or a person starting to in their career, it can give you a good um, sort of um, foot in the door anywhere all over the world. You know, so you work for Rick Stein. So that's one 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 good thing, I suppose, why people work there. And I think it's they do you you do get looked after in terms of the money. I mean, it was it was on when I was there, it was on London levels. Like you know, so when I come out of London expecting to have a massive pay drop, it was still on the same sort of level. So Rick and Jill, they'd understood that you need to sort of compete at that level, but they could because it was such a busy business, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the people that stay here, say like Stefan, who who's who's like the executive chef, he's still there now. And I worked with him. We, he was a sous chef above me, and I was the junior sous chef, so he's still there. And I think the reason why someone like that would stay is just because you know he's just had so much opportunity while while it's been growing. It's a fast growing business. I think you know a lot. Don't get me wrong. People did leave. People did come in and didn't handle that environment because maybe they just didn't have the the basics or um, the understanding, or didn't get into that into that frame of mind. Because there was no getting away from it. The place is a beast. It's busy, right? That's the one thing. If you were slow, it would be too much. Yeah. And so you, you did have to move yourself and you had to be very self-managing within. There was no one. With that kitchen, there was no time necessarily for anybody to be coaching you necessarily. You, you were given your feedback by presenting a dish to the parson and they'll say, no, that's bad. or that's good. or that's great. You know, it was, there was a certain amount of teaching, but we did all, all the recipes were from his books. So if you, so they were on the shelf, you know, so you either had a reference, you go open it and go, 
that's the book and if any adjustments were made were made on them books so you're yeah. like oh yeah the time is only three books it was yeah there's um taste of the sea fruits of the sea and seafood odyssey they were the three books that we were taking most and then before that he'd written a book called um english seafood cookery which he wrote in the 80s which is a little little uh, paperback um, and so the the repertoire was based upon those four books so you had good reference and I'd never experienced that because I'd never worked for a chef or worked for Gary Rose but you didn't is but the food that was in his books to what was in the restaurant was a bit different yeah so and he didn't use them the books you didn't have a book it were written you'd actually use them so there's a good advert for it how good his recipes are right <laughs> um and then I think, and it was then the people that were in there would coach you because they'd been there and done the jobs on a rep- in a repetitive nature so many times that they knew. So as you were new, you would get onto a section with someone who'd been there a while and they would run you through it as you were working. Mm. Um, it wasn't one of the, we hadn't got to a time then where you, I mean, you did forcefully, they probably did appraisals once a year or something like that because it was just someone told you you got to do it, that sort of thing. But it was more on the job sort of, I'd say old school kitchen and not in the fact that it was like full on like violent full on it was just a old school that you we all knew everyone knew what your job was if you didn't fit in you probably would fall by the wayside but if you did fit in you you would really you do you'd enjoy it and you'd have a good time so you mentioned appraisals twice now both in Rick's and also <laughs> with what you do in terms of how you yeah. bring on new chefs I mean how important are regular regular appraisals and how often do you I think I, I personally think they're really important um, and especially when you're dealing with a member of staff that's maybe um, not getting the most out of working in the kitchen or not going in the right direction that you, you think that they should because if you can monitor them and you can help them to get to where they want to get. Sometimes people will just get, especially finding the younger chefs that they slightly get, nowadays you get a lot of younger chefs that will come into the kitchen expecting to be, big on instagram on the tv have a book deal like pretty quick right we don't get as many of those but every so often you you just got to use the appraisal that one-to-one or actually two-to-one you never have one-to-one you're not allowed to do that anymore you have to be you all them sort of things you have to we always make sure there's two people because you just don't it's just not worth getting into that any of them areas of problems you know what i mean so yeah i mean we we do it because we hadn't we had a what did we it was like about 10 years ago there was an incident where i had to i was one-to-one with someone and you know you you just get if unless you have monitored those meetings you you, sometimes people just don't take what you say to them in the right context and they can get it in the wrong way yeah so you're always we always have two 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 members and 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 with that individual we yeah we can if they want one-on-ones we do one-on-ones as well but we just make sure that it's a team that know about what's going on with the person not necessarily ones obviously personal stuff that's different but we're talking about developing them as chefs or developing them as front of house so i mean the way that we the appraisals are important is because you can monitor the progress and you can help people get to where they want to and i think it's important for younger chefs especially ones that are a bit nervous or um ones that um maybe have sort of learning difficulties we have you know we've had people who've um you know autistic and stuff like that and it really helps them keep keep them on the track of of of, of what we expect from them and you know what they expect from us and you know explain sometimes you need to explain things in a different way for different people i i once had this i think it's yet again probably a few well probably about 10 years ago now we had a management 
company come in to sort of like help us with that sort of thing yeah. and i by halfway through i just got rid of them because they they weren't doing it right uh, and they were, i hired him in on, uh, to actually help us with that but actually they said you need to manage everybody the same way and i just went this is not right and the half time when we had like the thing i said that you might as well just um i think what you're saying is wrong for this industry it was it's because it was an appraisal company for that just probably do office workers or different things just yeah, different yeah. thing whereas kitchens are completely different or restaurants are completely different hospitality so i i believe you have to you have to manage every you have certain people that that can take pressure certain people that can't take pressure but you could, i always believe you can get the best out of anybody and i think the appraisals is a good way to do that I like what you say about being the fact that everyone is individuals in the kitchen environment. You know, we often hear about um, ruling by fear and treating mm-hmm. everyone with the same brush. And if you can't, you know, if you can't uh, keep up, then, yeah. you know, the person next door to them can do it. So why can't they? But it's such hospitality, is such a diverse bunch of individuals with their own ideas, their own influences, their own abilities to learn in different ways. So I think you, you are hundred percent right. And to try and, <laughs> it's, it's refreshing to hear that you brought in a management company and like now nah, actually do you know what go away yeah yeah i could do it better um it brings me on actually to something i'm hoping to get um jay morton on the podcast from sas who dares wins yeah um, cool. i was listening to one of his books fairly recently and he talks about leadership um, as part of the sas and obviously as we know the escoffier system is fairly you know it's based a military-based system and i think that's yeah. sometimes taken out of context but um, they operate to four different standards, which is humility, the relentless pursuit of excellence, a classless society, which means that everyone is you know, individual and unique in their own ways, um, and a sense of humor. And I started to look at whether or not we could adapt that and say, well, actually, right, you like the military system within a kitchen environment. How about now let's elevate you? Why aren't you the SAS? You know, and yeah. starting to adapt that into a management style. Yeah, um, I mean, that, yeah, everything you in four points definitely all part of what makes it successful in in that environment, and certainly produces a good teamwork. That's the thing. Yeah, I think that that's the one thing is that there's no, it's not a place for individuals. Like that's that that uh, in that sense, you know, like the egotistical individual. It's like if you want a successful restaurant, you know, it's about I I believe it's everyone knowing what they need to do and to, and and taught and and sort of like giving the tools to be able to do that and then making sure that it all works together and it's all about being organized you know i think when you any any um sort of point in my career where i see where it's got hot you know heated or you know kitchens that are crazy it's all down to organization every single time you know it, uh, you i give it you know, an example of any of these sort of places where you know service has gone to pot or you know someone's gone down in a section or you know it, it's always down to the organization so we always spend so much time on getting stuff done before you get into that into that zone where you can't control it yeah and that that, that and that's the thing and i do believe there is chefs out there um that like to have that as part of their kitchen they'd like to not force the organization so that it is a bit crazy i've right. definitely worked i've worked i've definitely worked with chefs that would rather not tell you that there's a vegetarian on table one just to tell you that check on there's one vegetarian and you don't know about it but they could have told you 10 minutes ago and you could have got organized for it so why, is, why is, i don't i don't i don't yeah i mean i i think 
because you can, I suppose you have, you have craziness and you have organized, organized spaces, don't you? You have like one, I suppose the organized space could get so organized that it just becomes boring. And actually I've gone through that. I mean, restaurant, one of the reasons why I changed restaurant Nathan Outdoor to Outdoor's New Road is because we, it became systematic. It became, uh, it came cooked by number because it was so consistent. So therefore there was no jeopardy in what we were doing. So I think there is people that like to put the jeopardy, throw the jeopardy into a service. So, um, so that it, it does make it a bit crazy. That's fine to a certain extent, I suppose, but it's when it goes to, it goes completely wrong and then it boils over and people will start getting violent, start getting abusive and start shouting and doing and, and hurting people's feelings, right? It's putting jeopardy into something, you know, I think there's jeopardy enough not knowing what people are going to order, you know, so you, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. so you, you know, you got 20 customers coming, you ain't got a clue what they're going to order. That's jeopardy. That's enough for me. I don't, <laughs> I don't need anything else. Is that how I go wrong? So I go, but whereas like when you've got tasting menu restaurant, like restaurant they found out was where it was just one straightforward menu. There was no jeopardy in the order apart from gluten freeze, dairy freeze, all that sort of stuff. But we knew all about that probably 80, 90% of the time because we got that information before they even arrived. Mm. So it, it becomes so systematic and so thingy that actually the service is like, there's nothing going on. It's just like cooking and it, I, I can see where it go, where it can become a bit boring. So I suppose if you are in the nature as a, as a chef or as a restaurant manager, where you like it, you like to be a bit, be a bit crazy, then you, you leave them bits out, don't you? That's, that's the sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's it. that's okay if you're a leader and you jump in and, and help when that when it shit hits the fan because yeah, you're yeah. not able to cope with it. But um, yeah, if you just there sat there smirking and going, "Huh, you're going down," and there's no stopping you now, it's uh, yeah, that's a completely different yeah. uh, way of doing things. But for me, it's all about organisation. I think I'd much rather just have a nice, easier day than one that's crazy <laughs> like that. <laughs> you can have a, a, a sort of a, a barrage of applications coming through for the summer. So yeah. uh, get, get ready. It's going to be, you know, young chefs who are looking at uh, a lifestyle change and to work for a decent level. Um, so yeah, uh, the email address is. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I mean, obviously, this podcast is is all about trying to. I'm I'm personally intrigued about the leadership styles and what makes a good kitchen and what makes a good business work as well, because obviously we've got to bear in mind that whilst the Burnt Chef project leads itself towards chefs, you know, mental health. Um, affects everyone on the planet, irrespective of back of house, front of house, you know, whether you're a bus driver or, or what. Um, and one way that I'm sort of challenging the perceptions of mental health is getting asking people to talk about their own experiences quite openly. Yeah. And through, throughout your career, you know, from, for uh, one of the questions we get asked a lot by colleges is, you know, we never see anyone or we never hear anyone talk about a difficult time and the impact and the thoughts that were going through their head and how that might have physically manifested in themselves. And I'm getting a real sense from colleges at the moment that they could be a benefit from people like yourself being able to say, yeah. well, actually, do you know what? Yeah, it was a tough time opening up my restaurant and here's the impact it had on me. I appreciate that sometimes that's not always the case and some people are more susceptible to, to struggling than others. Um, but I wondered if you had any sort of experiences that you might be able to share to normalize this a little bit. Oh, there's two really. I mean, in my career, I mean, yeah, we fortunate enough to, like I say, like being pretty positive and sort of always believed in me, myself and I and she. But yeah, one, the, what, the, the earlier point, which is probably more, um, I suppose, important for college 
college students and stuff was I suppose when I went to Gary Rose that first time that that really knocked me for six in terms of um that being a young chef and not really sort of knowing what the hell's going on and that was really down to a lack of preparation on my own part but probably just a, a, an expectation as well that it was all going to be like it was on the telly with Gary Rhodes mm. you know and I think that is you know that's one thing I would say for any advisory young chef coming into the industry is like you got to understand that what you see on the television and what you pick up in, in, in your bookshop and all that sort of stuff. And you see in magazines is because those guys nine times out of 10 have worked their asses off to get to that or got an opportunity to do that. So it's not, it just doesn't happen overnight. And if you're, you're very at 1%, like you say, like someone like Jamie, even Jamie, who's a good friend of mine, worked his ass off before he become the chef that we all know on television you know he, he worked hard in river cafe he worked hard with um with gennaro and stuff so you know it's it, it that is one thing i suppose from from and that's from, from a personal point of view i fell into that trap going to gary Rhodes and thinking it was going to be like working on telly with him mm. you know he wasn't <laughs> so that's one thing and i think the impact of that and not realizing how much it would be um like that was it it put me into a position where quite depressed quite you know it knocked my confidence um and i did i was luckily and fortunate enough to be able to go back to work for peter kronberg at the intercontinental and have that had that route to go back but at that point i was thinking of giving up about being chef and thinking of going you know i can remember it like you know this is we're talking well over 20 years ago and i can still remember that point when I walked through those doors and said I'm not, I'm not doing it anymore yeah. didn't turn up the next day and I'm not I'm you know and for a long time it was sort of played in my mind to the point of having dreams about it you know like sort of what would have done if I stayed there and stuff like that so um but that I looking back at it now I think it is all down to preparation and expectation on on myself so um and everybody that I spoke to about going to work they were all like excited from a point of view oh he's the guy off the telly yeah it's gonna be great so that was one thing. The second thing, like definitely is more recent, you know, and very much so um, when I, when the COVID happened, I'd already been having quite negative thoughts and quite sort of, um, I suppose, um, thoughts about being a chef. And that was because I worked to get all the opportunities that, that I'd had, so let's say about well, I started probably about five years, six years ago. I had both my restaurants in Port Isaac, which which were doing very well. We had the Mariners Pub in Rock, which was doing very, very well. Um, I'd had opened my restaurant in Dubai at the Burj Al Arab um, Hotel, best hotel in the world on paper. And we'd had the Capital Hotel as well. And so when I was flying around, not really thinking about life and just getting on with my job, because I had to, because I was going everywhere, I sort of, um, it, you, I was in a zone where I was just, it was, everything was great and going well. But roll on, you know, the early part of this year, you know, all that's gone. And th that was quite, I think, actually shocked me a bit because all of those opportunities um, in terms of, I decided to move from the capital to the Goring. But in terms of the Dubai restaurant and the Mariners, um, all three of those sort of opportunities were sort of like taken taken away 
Mm. And at that point, from my point of view, because I'd worked so hard for all those things, it, it took a, it made a big shock. It, it took you know it, it really sort of impacted me sort of mentally because I was just just thought what's the point? You know because we've we we've worked super hard to do all this and not realizing it i think it i didn't realize at the time that that was the case um but i knew that i weren't right and i knew that thing you didn't feel i wasn't enjoying being in the kitchen i wasn't enjoying cooking didn't want to do it i was more interested in actually being in my garden and doing the gardening and being at home and i think what saved that and what gave me time to actually reassess everything and rethink was the first lockdown and, you know, I started the first lockdown by telling and being part of telling 20 staff that they'd lost their jobs at the Goring and at the Siren restaurant. That weren't very nice to do. And that weren't very nice to be part of. And that took quite a, that was quite hard. And it's hard for all them guys, obviously. But from my point of view, when you tell people they've got the security of a job and they're going to, and they're under the under your banner with a hotel group and you've got everything safe and then that's just all gone out of your control that has an impact on you as well so that you know coming back from london after telling them and then coming back to a lockdown because that's when it started and then being just down to my two restaurants in port isaac knowing that they can't be open it was sort of like it was a bit like what else can go wrong do you know what i mean that was the sort of thing like that and and this was also they hadn't announced the furlough and I'd never even heard of furlough, obviously, because that's never happened before. No. So I just thought, right, I've got two months, three months at max, and I'm, I've lost my business. I've lost everything. Like, it's gone from having five places, you know, doing globe trotting, I suppose you're going to call it, doing different things to, 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 to nothing. So I think in those first couple of weeks until they announced the furlough system, how it was going to work, it was just that's, I think that's probably the lowest point of, what you know a career and i think it had an impact on um, personally with like the way i was with the, the the family and the kids and stuff like that so that was you know that and it was not not in, in a nasty way it's just i was very quiet and that's not me i'm not yeah. i'm not a quiet person so so then but then uh, as you do i mean i'm lucky enough to be able i work you know talk it through with you know why can we had conversations and stuff and because we were, were locked down, there was no one else to talk to apart from people on the phone, but I didn't, don't really have a relationship with anybody like that. You know, so I just worked it out for myself that what I needed to do was to change. So that's really why um, I hadn't felt that Restaurant Nathan Outlaw was right for probably f- two, three years. In that I knew that, like I said before, we were talking about how it was just becoming very cooked by number and is and the reason why that worked for me then was because I was busy with everything else I was going to London every every fortnight I was going to Dubai every six weeks you know so to actually have a restaurant that just I knew it was doing what it needed to do was fine yeah. but now I was in a different position I was like right I'm getting back in the kitchen and which is what I've done um so I need to sort of like I need to mix it up a bit um so fish yeah we've got the little fish kitchen which is um actually it's got michelin star as well but we never really talk about it everyone <laughs> really knows he's got it <clears throat> but you guys that was that sort of doing well so there was no reason to change that and but i knew we needed to mix that up a bit a bit and i need to bring myself give myself some new challenges so do changing it to outlaws new roads going against what everybody said why are you change? Why are you shutting number one restaurant in the country and two Michelin style restaurant? They're like, I think a few people think I was a bit mad, but it just, <laughs> it, I just needed to create a challenge again. So I've been coming in that full circle. I mean, 
you know, from going that first couple of weeks of lockdown thinking I've had enough for Sheffield, actually seriously looking into being a gardener and doing gardening and stuff like that <laughs> and um, just and stopping it completely, you know, and thinking to myself, you know, I've, I've written a few books, I'll probably keep things going by writing a few cookery books. Maybe I'll do, you know, Instagram video, I know all these sort of things you think you can, if you're on your own and you've not got 30 staff below you that you got to pay as well, you could probably just, you could get through, you know, and you could make things work. Um, but no, I know, you know, having a good think about it and knowing what I really, you know, I, I still love cooking and I still, and still love what I do. So, um, but I knew that I needed to change it. And that's why we changed throughout Lord's New Road. There's no other, no other reason really, other than just making it more fun when we're working there, making it more of a challenge to work in there. Uh, we opened up more services. We do more covers, although we do, in, in sit-ins now instead of it you being you have it for your table for the whole lunch or the whole dinner with the social distancing we only we've only got five tables upstairs and we've only got three on the bar so we had to we had to be think of it about it from a business point of view yeah. uh, so now we do two sit-ins on each service so yeah it's busy you're doing yeah we can do 70 to 80 cover days well before we were doing 20 22 24 something like that like maximum maximum a day so it's really changed our thing and that's like that's why when michelin came out a few weeks ago i wasn't even i wasn't even in that zone i was like you know that's i don't it's not even there you know and then to be awarded so we're like oh yeah so like okay it's great but as it's not what we were aiming for it's sort of like a restaurant we just wanted it to be a busy restaurant which is cooking with no rules yeah. didn't want to be put into them constraints you know it's yeah, like yeah. having to you know oh you you must have tablecloths you're a machinist direct all that sort of stuff but um but you know it's i'm not gonna you know it is what it is and i've sort of separated myself from that and i've just focused in in, in the restaurant so now right now as i sit here i feel better than i have done for a long long time and actually feel excited about the future about actually getting back in the kitchen and 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 developing new dishes bringing out new you know, hopefully bringing on new customers because we're the restaurant's gone down in price so we've opened up to a new audience right so it's going to be nice to have lots of different people coming through the door um and i know the chefs have enjoyed it um and i know the front of house have enjoyed it because they're busier and they they feel their days with 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 being busy and i think people like being busy yeah um albeit we all just at the moment just want to get back to it and open up so it's thank you firstly for sharing because i appreciate that you know stick was still so strong in our industry that sometimes it might be difficult for certain individuals so thank you for that but i find it interesting within the first couple of minutes you were talking about how you were quite quite a creative being and you like you know especially with your drawing and challenging yourself and you found a way out of feeling quite negative and depressed by creating creativity back in your life again in a different yeah. format. And whilst we're not able to cook and create new dishes necessarily, it's a whole different type of creativity. Mm. Um, and I like that. I, I resonate that. That's much the same for myself. Yeah. I just, I'm just a person that I probably think too much, um, but I do need that time to think. I think, and that's, some people can clear their mind that way. Some people probably can't. It's a different thing. But for me, that works, you know, to be able to just sort of take us, I've learned actually over the years that, you know, I used to just jump straight in and make decisions and say yes or no or whatever. Now I, you know, 
I won't ever make a, a decision for a good week before you know anything is serious. I, I'll be sit back and really think about it and talk, especially talk to it, my wife about it. You know, she's she probably the, the one person that sort of knows she she's the one person that knows me inside out. Yeah, you know, out of anybody, you know. So I think that's you know, and keeps my feet firmly on the ground, which is quite. If you can have someone like that in your life, it doesn't have to be your wife, but in in individuals, you know someone you can trust and someone you can talk to i think you should talk to about it yeah yeah she told me she, so you need someone to turn around to you and tell you talking shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah much, much like my wife like every day <laughs> yeah you do you need someone who can be quite frank with you because if you get yeah. handed to you, uh yeah especially so I'm, a, I'm a bit of a dreamer like i am a bit i do dream i'm a bit of a you know, i've got all these ideas and you sometimes you need someone to just rein you in but that little bit so it's not a bad thing yeah, I yeah, true. But also at the same time, I think there's nothing wrong with dreaming because it's all very well and good dreaming. But I think if you're the sort of person who can actually pull the trigger and turn those dreams or at least mm. start on the road to turning those dreams to reality, then you know what? Sometimes it takes, you know, have to scale it back a bit and look at yeah. it. But um, yeah, I mean, Christ, if it wasn't for dreaming, we would probably wouldn't have started businesses that, you know, bring change to people's lives through either food yeah. or through open conversations so you have to but um one thing i've always asked my always asked my guests and you've made some absolutely cracking points so far but um it's a bit of a curveball question um which is if you were to give some advice to a younger version of yourself um what sort of advice and what sort of things would you say yourself to yourself uh, i'd say the only thing that i haven't done and because I was so focused in in cooking was travel I you know and I still haven't you know everything I travel to is to cook right it's not it's never to go and to enjoy it so yeah one thing from my my own self would be to sort of experience a bit more of other cultures and a different part of the world um and you know really but in terms of what I've done I don't because I don't think I'd change any of it I actually think that um, the journey so far of what I've done, I've always walked my own path. I've never done what people tell me to do. And I think that's seen me well. So I suppose the advice would be to my young self is take more risks and take more and take more challenges on board. And don't, there's a few things that I should have just gone for and didn't do. So um, I think that's it. I mean, I'm a great believer in that. It, it's, when you do something wrong, it's not a mistake the first time. It's only a mistake the second time. So you can't make mistakes by by having a go at something. Yeah, and that and I think so, you know, if I hadn't haven't didn't have that attitude, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now because I would still be back in Kent, probably doing something there and and would never would have enjoyed that whole journey of what i've done so far you know and i and i i just believe it's, it's still the beginning now anyway i've not even started yet <laughs> I think that's oh, what you gotta think love it i love it i'm intrigued to see what's next and uh who knows what the next couple of years will bring yeah. but um I, I really appreciate your time and i appreciate the fact that you've uh you've spoken so openly and frankly as well and you know for anyone that is listening um yeah, I hope you've enjoyed it too. But also at the same time, yeah, we've just launched the Burnt Chef uh, support service. Uh, so if people are struggling with who they can talk to in their life, then text that number. You know, it's free. We, It's free 24-7, even after a late service. And it just helps provide a bit of 
clarity and someone to not necessarily tell you you're talking shit. But, you know, you need a wife, a wife or a husband for that. Um, but uh, it certainly helps just put things into perspective. So, Nathan, thank you ever so much for that. Hey, lovely to speak to you, Chris. Thanks a lot. You too, my friend. Speak soon. Take care. Cheers, bye. bye. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Burnt Chef Journal. It was a really insightful chat with Nathan and one that I thoroughly enjoyed. We've got more people coming up on forthcoming episodes over the next couple of weeks, so do stay tuned. And for those who want to support the Burnt Chef Project, head over to our website, www.theburntchefproject.com, where you'll find a whole host of resources, access to the Burnt Chef support service, and also our shop where you can buy some merchandise and help support the ongoing work that we're doing. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon.